we are notorious for um, cutting down tall poppies, but there's a paradox. Sometimes we don't even seem to recognise the very tallest. For example, take scientists Mark Oliphant and Howard Florey. They played a pivotal role in World War II, which is far from fully appreciated. Indeed, they, they changed the course of the war, as a new book argues. And these two uh, young fellows from Adelaide, good friends who'd moved to London to pursue their research, between them had, in a brief period in 1940, and I quote, developed the device that was critical to winning the war, conceived the powerful weapon that ended it, and produced the miracle treatment that enabled countless casualties to survive it. Now, not only that, they had separately travelled to the US to try to persuade the, the US to get into the war and uh, back their research. The book is Wizards of Oz, how Oliphant and Florey helped win the war and shape the modern world. And the author is Brett Mason. Now, if Brett has a hat rack in the corner of his office, it will be laden with hats. Uh, he's a former Liberal senator for Queensland, a former Australian ambassador to the Netherlands, and a former lawyer. And he's still chair of the National Library Council, my absolutely favourite national institution, and we'll chat to him about that uh, a bit later. Brett, before we uh, we hear their stories, would you be kind enough to remind us of the value and the spectacular achievements of each of the three things these blokes gave us? Let's start with the war winning device. Ah, oh, uh, Philip. Um, good evening. You're right. Um, the the war winning device uh, was microwave radar. And in war, the first task of war, of course, is to locate the enemy and Radar is essentially seen with radio waves. And already by the beginning of the Second World War, there was long-wave radar, but many countries were trying to develop microwave radar for these reasons, that the smaller the radio wave, the clearer the picture, you know, the better the definition. And with microwaves, you can see further with a much clearer picture of the target. Even more importantly, microwaves... Uh, you need much smaller antenna. And the long-wave radars, these the sort of silent sentinels on the east coast of Britain, and some still remain uh, as tourist attractions, were long-wave radar, and they're about 70 metres high. They need these huge antenna. But with microwave radar, you could fit the antenna in the palm of your hand or in a suitcase. So you could put it into fighters and bombers and small naval vessels and it became a portable device to see further in the dark and in all weather, changing the war. I hadn't realised that the Battle of Britain had no radar. It was all done by sight. Oh, it's a, that's an interesting observation. People assume that in the hurricanes and the spitfires that, that there was radar in the planes. There wasn't. You're quite right. There was long-wave radar on the coast, and it was old, fairly old technology, but it worked, and it gave the Brits about... 20 minutes notice that fighters and bombers were coming across the channel. And quite simply, there'd be a phone call from the long-wave radar station to a central point, and they would send up the fighters to intercept, as you say, visually, pilots visually, the bombers and the uh, German 
fighter pilots. So it wasn't quite what people think. It really was done by sight, other than the initial picking up of the um, invading bombers by long-wave radar. Did micro-radar help in the final analysis with U-boats? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Winston Churchill always said his greatest fear uh, during the Second World War was the Battle of the Atlantic, and that's why he said he couldn't sleep. And that was when, even when the United States had declared war on Germany and was no longer neutral, getting men and materiel across the Atlantic, they were losing that battle, the Battle of the Atlantic, right up until about March, April of, of 1943, which is the last place really that the Nazis were winning. And it was only finally when the entire um, Atlantic Ocean was covered by microwave radar sitting in bombers above the ocean, looking down and spying on the U-boats. Every time the U-boat surfaced or got near the surface, they got them. <laughs> and within a, within a few weeks, Philip, Admiral Dernit said it's all over. The British have got us. So it's an extraordinary achievement. So while you could no longer fly over or under or float under uh, my th- the radar, Oliphant is busily conceiving a rather different and more dreadful weapon. Tell us about uh, that. Yes, yes. He's just a couple of weeks after they invented this cavity magnetron to facilitate um, microwave radar, uh, two scientists, German jury scientists, came to him with a memorandum that proved theoretically that you could build an airborne atomic bomb. And it was the first time that people believed it could be done, at least during the war. There was a vague sense, uh, Philip, that it was sort of theoretically possible, you know, but it was out there, but it was for the next war. It wasn't, no one thought it was possible in the short to medium term. And these two scientists, Frisch and Piles, went to Oliphant and said, this is how you do it. And Oliphant was, you know, taken aback, but he then took it to the British, who then spent about uh, 12 months, what you would call peer-reviewing it, to see if it really would work. And, of course, they decided that uh, it would work and that the atomic bomb wasn't just possible, it was probable. Now, of course, we know that the Germans were working desperately but not very successfully on it. And I discovered, yeah. to my astonishment some decades ago, that so were the Japanese, but they were getting nowhere fast. Now, finally, the life-changing, world-changing medication penicillin. Three cheers, four cheers for <laughs> Howard Florey. Well, absolutely. Um, it's, uh, it's funny, I, people don't perhaps realise, Philip, you and I do, but that how life-changing, in fact, world-changing penicillin was, probably saved about 200 million lives and added, some people say, over 20 years to our life expectancy, you know. I mean, just dwell on that for a minute. Save 20 Mm -hmm. million lives and added decades to life expectancy. What an achievement. 200 million. I mean, that, it's, it's, it absolutely, you couldn't even have, Philip, modern, modern surgery, you know, it's predicated on antibiotics, clearly modern surgery. It just takes your breath away. But back in 1940, when he uh, developed the drug, even going back to thousands of years, people had known that moulds put onto infected wounds had an antibacterial property. You know, that it, it did seem to help in the healing of wounds. 
our native uh, in uh, Central Europe that were used, the Hittites used it, the Egyptians, and our indigenous people here in Australia used mould off the um, shady side of trees to put on wounds. So there was sort of a, a folk knowledge. Then you've heard of Alexander Fleming, who actually specified penicillin notatum as an antibacterial mould. And then it was picked up, of course, by Florey and his team in Oxford in 1939, 1940, and they extracted the active ingredient, although it nearly, nearly killed them. <laughs> it's so hard to do it, and that's why people hadn't done it before. And, of course, made the first penicillin in May of 1940 and used it on, on albino mice uh, to great success. It's interesting, Brett, that recently, of course, the Crimea has been much in the news, and uh, you point out that in the Crimean War... It was 78% of the death toll was from disease. Yes, yes. It, isn't it extraordinary? And even as late as the Great War, the First World War, half the soldiers killed were killed by um, not bullets and you know, artillery and, and shrapnel, but by infection, infected wounds or infectious diseases. And whether it's Napoleon retreating from Russia, everyone says it was the cold. It was also typhus, you know, uh, and throughout throughout history, right up until the Second World War, most soldiers died not of wounds from bows and arrows or, or, or rocks or cannon fire, but from infectious diseases or wounds. And people forget that about the Second World War and penicillin in particular changed all that. My guest is Brett Mason and Brett, you open your book with an account of Two extraordinary flights, one for each man, only five weeks apart in 1941. Can you sketch the general picture of what they were doing and the times they were in? Because in the broad sense, mm. it was a shared mission. Yes, it was. And they went um, in July of, of 1941, Howard Florey flew to the United States, uh, carrying with him uh, hope, <laughs> desperation, <laughs> and some unre unremarkable brown powder, frankly. Um, and why he's doing it is because he now has penicillin and he believes and he's concerned because Britain simply doesn't have the manufacturing capacity to mass produce it. So he has to go to the United States to, in, in effect, sell his idea. Uh, and he arrives and he um, has to front the American pharmaceutical industry and, of course, the United States government. They are very, very sceptical. And frankly, you couldn't blame them. If I turned up to you, Philip, and you're a, an executive for Pfizer or Merck, one of the great pharmaceutical companies in America, and said, I have tried this on albino mice and I've tried it on six human beings, two of whom have died, that isn't exactly a, a wondrous case history. And that's what he had to sell penicillin to the Americans. And the other traveller? <laughs> it was Mark Oliphant who came across in uh, August uh, 1941, about five or six weeks later, and he was in a Liberator bomber and he flew right across... Uh, the United States, uh, in fact, he really ran out of petrol on the way. They, they, they nearly landed um, 
in the drink. But his mission was was twofold: to sell refinements to microwave radar for the cavity magnetron and, and to perfect microwave radar, and also to get the Americans focused on the atomic bomb because they had done apparently nothing, even though the, the British had been sharing information. So you're saying that, in a sense, he energised what became the Manhattan Project? In a sentence, Philip, yes. Uh, the Americans seem to take a clear, uh, think there's a sort of a direct path between Einstein's letter to President Roosevelt in 1939 and, you know, and the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project started, was, was initiated because Mark Oliphant uh, got there and ran around the United States uh, berating. <laughs> uh, you, you've met him. You know, he was a fairly, uh, had a lot of personality uh, and he wasn't someone to be taken lightly. And he um, upset the courtly Americans and said, you know, you have to build this bomb. We can't. And if you don't, the Nazis will. And the, no one in America in the summer of the northern summer of 1941 believed it was possible but Oliphant convinced some people that it could be done. So how did our salesmen go with their respective pitches? What happened to, <laughs> what happened to Flory? <laughs> Howard Flory? Well, he was, you know, he, 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 there's a lot of luck in There's a lot of luck in this. He was, a, he was very well respected. And when he was young, with the um, backing of a Rockefeller scholarship in the 1920s, he'd been to the United States and built up certain contacts. And one of the people he just happened to be working with back in the, in, in, in the mid-1920s was a Professor Alfred Newton Richards, who, thank God, was linked to Vannevar Bush, who was the President Roosevelt's science czar. He was the man charged with weaponizing science for war. And he was the head of one of uh, Vannevar Bush's sub subcommittees. <laughs> and uh, you could be lucky. And... It was Flory in lunch uh, in, in Philadelphia, I think, where he said, we can do this because everyone else had said it can't be done. It's too difficult. Uh, it's too expensive. Uh, it's too unlikely. And Richards believed him. And Richards then sold the idea to Vannevar Bush and made the US government, its facilities, and the American pharmaceutical companies make penicillin. And they did. And it's it was it's a close run thing, Philip. You know, it's was there was never any certainty. But he knew Richards, and he convinced Richards, and it was Richards was the was the key point for for Howard Florey. And of course, he had the president's ear. Now, correct. How did Mark make his mark? What happens to the <laughs> Oliphant trip? Uh, well, it's easier in one sense because uh, already. British science was held in high regard because of microwave radar, which, which the Americans uh, bought much more easily because many countries had tried to, had tried to develop microwave radar you know, before the war. And when uh, Oliphant came up, Oliphant's laboratory came up with uh, microwave radar, the Americans very quickly grabbed it and, and sought to refine it uh, and, and perfect it for, for, for war. So his standing in the United States was already high. In, indeed, the first uh, first few sets that they made in America, they called the O-tube after Oliphant, the Oliphant tube. So he was highly regarded. But the atomic bomb was very different. He arrived 
and the Americans hadn't even the, the, the committee charged with looking at this issue, the Iranian committee hadn't even looked looked at the secret reports coming from Britain about their examination of of the possibility of a nuclear bomb. Hadn't even looked at it. So, of course, <laughs> with his very uh, forceful personality, he went around Washington and New York trying to get people to, to focus on the problem before the Nazis built it. He couldn't. So he flew to San Francisco, to, to Berkeley, University of California, and Ernest Lawrence was his, you know, calling a friend, That was he, he was the man who understood the physics and again, Philip, had the ear of someone who had the ear of President Roosevelt. And he convinced Ernest Lawrence that this could be built, the bomb, and Lawrence convinced the others who convinced President Roosevelt. That was the chain. Heavens above, and the world would never be the same again. No, no. And Philip, it's interesting because it's, there's, as you point out in your opening remarks, it's that there's the, the inventions in 100 days in 1940, you know, of, of, of the three, of, of radar and then the bomb and then penicillin, and it's the selling of those ideas in, in the summer and fall of, of, of 1941. It was absolutely critical. Otherwise, all those innovations wouldn't have been, um, could not have been deployed during the Second World War to such great effect. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been, in fact, they wouldn't have been deployed at all because they wouldn't have been ready. Was Oliphant conflicted in his uh, advice about the bomb because his pre-war research had been for peaceful purposes? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, you're right. I think... All his life, he was conflicted between, on the one part, being a you know, war hero, and he was called a war hero on the front page of the Daily Telegraph on the day Hiroshima was bombed. There was his photograph, you know, as a hero. And he himself said it was a great, you know, technological and engineering achievement, which it was at one level, you know, clearly. It was a brilliant achievement at one level. But he also saw himself, as he said, as a war criminal, <laughs> and he, in a sense, could never reconcile the two for the, for, the, for the rest of his life. And I don't think he ever regretted assisting to build the bomb and advocating and pushing the Americans to do it. But I think he always regretted actually dropping the bomb on, on Japan in, in August 1945. I think that was also true of most of the people involved in the, in the Manhattan Project, wasn't it? They, they oh, realised right. that mm -hmm. brighter than a thousand suns had changed the world and put it at great risk. Oh, I, I think that's right. And as you said before, you know, the world has, has never been the same uh, again and... It, it changed international relations and, in a sense, even changes the way we, we, we see ourselves. Penicillin made us feel a lot less vulnerable into infection and infectious diseases, but the atomic bombs and nuclear weapons have cast a pall, I think, since, since the Second World War, and we see ourselves at one level as much more vulnerable. And, you know, again, uh, to address a point you raised before, what's going on at the moment in... In Ukraine, it sort of raises the spectre again of, 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 of nuclear weapons. And I, wanna, I don't want to overstate the point, but in the back of our minds, Philip, I think we, we worry about issues like that, you know. 
Brett, tell me about their friendship and how did they become cobbers? Uh, they knew, Oliphant and Flory knew each other as, as boyhood friends in, in Adelaide. Not well because, you know, there was about three years difference in age and that's quite a lot, you know, when you're, when you're young. But they were students together, at undergraduates at the University of Adelaide after the First World War. And indeed, they had a drink with each other before Howard Florey went uh, to Oxford and, and landed there actually one century ago in, in 1922. And then they got together again in the late 1920s when Howard Florey was finishing off his PhD at Cambridge. And of course, Mark Oliphant was commencing his at the Cavendish Laboratories under uh, Sir Ernest Rutherford. So they knew each other well then. And then, of course, after the Second World War, they got to know each other intimately. They were very close friends and they helped establish, of course, the Australian National University in Canberra and were brought back to run that show really by uh, initially John Curtin, one of them, and then, of course, Ben Shifley and, and Nugget Coombs all wanted them to be involved in founding this wonderful research institution. You describe uh, Flory as an athletic, dark-haired young doctor and of Oliphant you contrast as, a, well, a gentle giant, but as a bespectacled boffin. Yes. <laughs> well, Howard Flory, if you look at the photograph of him in the book, it looks like he stepped out of the Great Gatsby. Um, he, was a, he was quite had striking good looks, Howard Flory, and uh, he had, sort of had nature's gifts of good looks and a brilliant intellect, if not always charm, in the case of Howard Florey. <laughs> Whereas Mark Oliphant, you know, he had he was a bit deaf in one ear and his sight was always terrible, but he was a man of obviously great intellectual gifts and also a very persistent personality, uh, a bit more gregarious, Mark Oliphant was, than, than Howard Florey, who was more reserved uh, and rather more prickly than, than Mark Oliphant. Finally, let's talk about the National Library, where you're the chair of the council, which I guess is like the board. It is. It is. It's the, the board of the National Library, yes. It's a, it's a terrific job, Philip. In fact, it's one of the great... Um, it's an honour to do it, actually. I love, I love doing it. Well, I think it's a fabulous organisation. How is it travelling? Strapped for cash, as uh, so many of our cultural institutions? Yeah, we are. I think um, all of our national cultural institutions have been sort of underfunded at one level for, for many years for parties of all persuasions. I certainly don't want to throw any particular party into the mix, but it's, it's a constant problem. It hasn't always been terrible in the sense that we often get short-term funding to address critical needs. And so next year, for example, we have Trove, which is, you know, without Trove, I couldn't have written the book that we've just discussed. We've sung the praises of Trove again and again on the program. Oh, fabulous. Great. Yeah, fabulous. And so the funding runs out for that in uh, the middle of next year. Now, we couldn't as, as a country be without Trove, in my view. It digitises all the newspapers, photographs, uh, manuscripts and the rest. And I used it, as I say, for this book. But it's the short term, it's a lot of the funding, it's the you know, the efficiency dividends on small institutions like the National Library and Museum of Australian Democracy that has a, an outsized effect, I think it's fair to say. But being a former politician, I understand there's plenty of calls on the government's uh, the government purse, you know, but it is difficult. It is difficult. I know Elbo is listening in, uh, Brett, so um, <laughs> I can hear him getting out the checkbook as we speak. But, of course, this is personal for you. You live in Queensland these days, but you grew up in Canberra. Oh, you've done your research. Yes, I uh, 
how many teenagers spend their teenage years in, in the National Library? Um, like one of your friends, Jermaine Greer, I, I believe heaven is a, heaven is a library. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I loved it. I, I do have a personal investment, really, in the National Library as well. Yes. Well, break a leg on that because, as I said earlier, it's my favourite of the institutions down there. And oh, thank, uh, you. thank you very much, Brett, for coming on. Brett Mason is the author of Wizards of Oz, How Oliphant and Flory Helped Win the War and Shape the Modern World. It's published by New South. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.